Have you ever gotten lost? Turned around? Separated from your friends? Maybe in a city you didn't know? There's that moment where the panic starts to set in. How will I find my way back? Did anyone notice I was missing? What if I never find my way back? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor and a podcaster who tries to be the reasonable one, but usually ends up wondering if maybe there is a portal into another dimension at the back of their closet. This week, two men go missing from impossibly crowded places where security cameras abound, never to be seen again. Or maybe they were? Today, I'm telling you two stories of men who vanished. Fifteen years ago, on Friday, April 1st, 2006, Brian Schaefer, a 27-year-old med student at Ohio State, was celebrating the end of exams and the beginning of spring break by bar hopping with his friend Clint Florence and the throng of other spring breakers. Brian's mother had just died from cancer only three weeks before, and he was planning on leaving on Monday for Florida with his longtime girlfriend Alexis, whom he planned on proposing to. So between that and finishing his exams, Brian had a lot of things going on. Brian and Clint apparently ended their night meeting up with another friend, Meredith Reed, at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, which, let me just say, is the worst name for a bar I have literally ever heard. Anyway, the Ugly Tuna Saluna was on the second floor of a corporate-type building with an escalator that led from the first floor to the only entrance or exit to the bar. At 1.15 a.m., the security camera posted outside the bar caught Brian, Clint, and Meredith riding up the escalator and ostensibly heading for the Ugly Tuna Saluna. Forty minutes later, at 1.55, Brian can be seen again on the same security camera chatting with a couple women just outside the bar. Two security guards stand a few feet away, most likely getting ready for the bar crowd to leave after last call at 2 a.m. Honestly, even thinking about being at a bar at 2 a.m. makes me tired. On the security camera footage, Brian can be seen walking toward the entrance of the bar, but the actual entrance to the bar itself is out of frame. As the drunken horde of college students poured out of the bar at closing time, Clint and Meredith waited outside for Brian. They called him on his cell phone, but he didn't pick up. And Clint went back inside and checked the bathroom, but he wasn't there. Clint and Meredith then made the assumption that Brian had already left and hadn't told them. Folks, can we please normalize not leaving your friends at bars just because you can't get a hold of them? Like, unless they explicitly said, you go ahead, I'll stay here, and or they're not, like, incoherently drunk, don't leave without your friend who gave you no warning that they were going somewhere. Well, that's not how Clint and Meredith handled the situation. They assumed nothing was wrong and left. But the next morning, no one had heard from Brian. His girlfriend tried calling him. His father tried calling him. He didn't pick up. 
And then on Monday morning, Brian was a no-show at the airport for his flight to Miami with Alexis. By this point, nobody had heard from him for almost 48 hours. That's when everyone officially stopped assuming nothing was wrong. His family finally called the Columbus Police Department, filed a missing persons report, and shortly thereafter, the search for Brian Schaefer began. Now, look, I've talked about how people handle stress in all kinds of different ways. Some people prefer not to face something that might be awful. And it sure seems like a whole lot of people in this situation were trying not to come face to face with the possibility that something awful might have happened to Brian. Because waiting all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and then into Monday just seems, I don't want to be mean, but it seems like some really bad decision making. Police search initially focused on the surveillance footage from outside the Ugly Tuna Saluna. They accounted for everyone else coming and going but him. It seemed that Brian had never left the bar. The police checked inside, though, and found nothing. Investigator John Hurst said, We searched every nook and cranny of the building, including with cadaver dogs. When they found nothing inside, the police started thinking of ways that Brian could have made it out undetected by the cameras. Remember when I said the entrance to the bar wasn't in frame of the security camera? Police realized that the camera had a small blind spot. Though there wasn't much in the area between where the camera frame ended and the door to the bar. It's not like there was an elevator or a door to anywhere else. There was just a wall and then the door to the Ugly Tuna Saluna. This was reassuring to the cops because it meant that there was only one way to get in and out of the bar. Or so they thought. Upon further investigation inside the bar, the cops realized there actually was another way Brian could have gotten out of the place, through a service entrance. In April 2006, the building that housed the Ugly Tuna Saluna was under construction. If Brian, for some reason, used the service entrance, he would have walked straight into the construction site. Most likely, if he did use that exit and came upon a construction site, he would have quickly realized his mistake and turned around to go back into the bar. Unless he was blackout drunk, which it didn't look like he was the five minutes before last call. But who knows, right? I'm 100% positive that in my 20s, there were plenty of times that I managed to go from coherent to blackout drunk between the time the lights went on for last call and the time I was actively ushered out of the bar as they locked the door behind me. But what if Brian knew about the construction site and walked into it on purpose? I'll get to that. So, finding nothing inside the building or in the construction area, the police shifted the search to the streets of Columbus, where as many as 50 police officers searched for Brian at a time, scouring the streets, pawing through dumpsters, and knocking on doors. They even gained access to the city's sewer system, maybe thinking he had Jean Valjeaned his way out of town. That's a lame is reference, folks. Keep up. 
But there was no sign of Brian anywhere. A year went by, and the police still had no answers. There were plenty of tips that came from the public, but none of them led anywhere. No one knew where Brian was. No one knew if Brian was alive. No one knew if Brian was dead. No one knew anything. Fifteen years later, still no one knows what happened to Brian Schaefer. Or if they do, they haven't come forward. And so, of course, as with any mystery, the theories abound. Most people assume that Brian somehow left that bar that night. Police have even chased down sightings in Texas, Sweden, and Mexico, coming up empty-handed every time. There is an elaborate and convoluted theory that Clint somehow helped Brian escape incognito through the construction site, after which Brian fled to Mexico and has been living there ever since. Recently, an American tourist familiar with Brian's case took a photo of a man on the street in Tijuana. They thought it was Brian Schaefer. You can easily find the photos online, and the resemblance is eerie. In fact, there was enough of a resemblance that the FBI actually ran the photo through facial recognition software. It came back as no match. There have been other Mexico sightings, but why would the sweet, loyal, handsome, caring boyfriend abandon the supposed love of his life and his grieving father and run to Mexico? And if he did, fucking rude, Brian. Rude. The Brian disappeared on purpose theory hinges on the fact that his friend Clint is seen on camera heading back toward the ugly tuna saluna, where he claims he looked for Brian in the bathroom before rejoining Meredith a few minutes later out in front of the bar. But unless Clint managed to help pull off an incredibly risky and elaborate disappearance in the span of five minutes, this scenario is unlikely. And if Clint wasn't helping Brian run away from his life, why was Clint the only person involved in this whole thing who refused to cooperate with police? Some people close to Brian have questions about Clint. Brian's brother and his father-in-law-to-be have publicly stated that they believe Clint knows more than he's saying. Even the detective currently working on the case told a reporter in 2020 that he believes someone interviewed in the past has withheld information. The detective wouldn't give the name of the person he was talking about, but who could it have been other than Clint, right? And that makes sense. If anybody knows something about Brian Schaefer's disappearance, it's Clint. He was with Brian all night, and he was the last one to see Brian in person. According to police, Clint is the only person to refuse a polygraph test. And almost immediately following the disappearance, Clint lawyered up. So what has Clint got to hide? Maybe nothing. Maybe he's just making the legally sound decision. On the other hand, let's say Clint is hiding something. There's two roads that could lead us down. The first is that Clint is such a loyal friend that after helping Brian run away, he put his own security at risk by refusing to tell the police when questioned. The other road is more sinister. In this scenario, Clint killed Brian, or at the very least knows who did. 
to this allegation, Clint Florence's lawyer responded, it is Brian and not Clint who is causing his family pain and hardship. Brian should come forward and end this, which is a weird statement to make about someone unless, A, you know they're still alive and in hiding, or B, your fucking client killed him. If Brian did manage to leave the bar unnoticed, the most plausible explanation as to his disappearance is that he met with foul play and his body was disposed of. Some people think Brian may have been one of the victims of the smiley face killer, but as I covered in my episode about those men, they all showed up dead up or down river somewhere days or weeks after having disappeared. It seems that if the smiley face killer or killers is a thing, one of the calling cards is an eventual dead body. Of course, it could have been anyone else who saw an easy target and took an opportunity and then hid the body tremendously well, which would be a remarkable feat considering how hard it is to walk around a major metropolitan area in the days after 9-11 without getting captured on at least a dozen cameras. Then again, I'm no criminal mastermind, so what do I know? But maybe everybody's overthinking it. Maybe we should trust what the surveillance footage seems to be telling us. Maybe Brian Schaefer never did leave that bar, at least not alive. Now, to be clear, there is zero evidence that anyone associated with the ugly tuna saluna acted nefariously here. But there's also zero evidence of anything in this case, so let's go down this rabbit hole. Maybe an exhausted bartender got a head start on mopping the bathroom floor. At 1.55 a.m., Brian stumbles into the bar to go pee. He walks into the bathroom. There's no wet floor sign. Brian's drunk, maybe even overserved, and he slips, hits his head on the sink, and dies. The staff freaks out. They call the bar owner, who's like, everyone just calmly leave the bar like it's a normal Friday night. I will take care of it. And then what? Calls up Harvey Keitel to help him cover up an accidental death? That's a Pulp Fiction reference. I'm curt with you. It's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. Brian gets wrapped up in bar mats, hauled out the service entrance, and dropped into a dumpster. This seems unlikely for about a million reasons, but also you would think that after 15 years, someone would have come forward and been like, Brian died in the ugly tuna saluna that night. I was there. No one has. Or maybe Brian stumbled onto the construction site by mistake and then fell somewhere and was unknowingly buried in concrete? I mean, one would hope that construction workers check where they're about to pour concrete, but who knows? We will probably never know what happened to Brian Schaefer. And as scary and awful as that is for his loved ones, take a second to remind yourself, next time you're headed out for an evening of frivolity, that even in a city filled with security cameras, you too could walk out of frame, never to be heard from again. So maybe you're thinking, well, Ohio is one thing, but I bet no one can disappear in New York City where there are about a billion security cameras everywhere you look. Wrong, my friend. The New York City Police Department claims to control one of the world's largest networks of cameras designed to detect and prevent terrorist attacks 
but also of great value in criminal investigations. Between the estimated 9,000 surveillance cameras scattered around the city and the 8 million people who live there, seemingly every single step you take in New York City, someone, somewhere has eyes on you. So, in one of the most surveilled cities in the world, how does someone step outside for a walk and then just vanish, never to be seen or heard from again? Twenty-two-year-old Ian Burnett grew up in Richmond, Virginia. According to his family, he was a good kid. He was an Eagle Scout and the valedictorian of his high school. After high school, Ian went to Virginia Commonwealth University, where he studied engineering, mathematics, and physics. Ugh. On Wednesday, December 26, 2012, Ian hopped on a bus for New York City to meet up with friends for New Year's Eve. The apartment the group shared was on 139th Street in Harlem. Little is known about how Ian spent his first few days in the city, but we do know that on December 30th at about 4 p.m., he sent a text to one of the people he was staying with saying that he was stepping out for the night. Ian Burnett never came back. Before we go any further, let me just say there is very little information to be found on this case beyond the smattering of media attention that it got in early January 2013. The only clue anyone had to go off of was that Ian's Metro card, which is the card you use to get on the subway, had been swiped at the 145th Street subway station. Beyond that, we don't know how long Ian was gone before anyone noticed. We don't know how Ian's family found out Ian was missing. We do know that by January 4th, Ian's older brother Jamie and their father were in New York City looking for him. At 8.50 a.m. on January 5th, Jamie made the following post on a New York City-related Reddit board with the title, My little brother has been lost in New York City for five-plus days and no one knows where he is. Please help. My name is Jamie, and I'm from Virginia. My little brother Ian left on Boxing Day right after Christmas to spend New Year's in Times Square with some people he didn't know very well. They spoke another language from him, and apparently he felt alienated, and on the 30th, he simply walked away. My father and I traveled in our family minivan to the city yesterday and visited his apartment. The girls he had been staying with had left, and all his bags were left behind. He left his phone, his wallet, his laptop, his trees, his iPod, and all his money. He did not leave his ID, a jacket, or the Metro card he bought. We believe these items were on him. Trees, by the way, is a reference to pot. Jamie added an update to the post several hours later, saying that Ian still had not been located and that he and his dad had spent the day putting up flyers, walking the neighborhood where Ian last was, talking to the cops, and checking homeless shelters. Mostly, he sounded exhausted, heartbroken, and scared. I don't know what else to do, he wrote. This Reddit post is over nine years old now. You can still find an archived version of it if you can stomach looking at anything on Reddit. For a while, Jamie was actively responding to people who were commenting on his post, so we learned a few more details there. 
Jamie said Ian felt alienated from the group he was with. The language barrier with the Vietnamese women he was staying with had gotten to him. And he seemed to be spending a lot of time alone on the trip. He was not having a good time. In addition to having left his phone behind, Ian didn't have keys to the apartment where he was staying, which means he not only had no means of getting back into the apartment, but no way of contacting anyone else in it. When Jamie finally made contact with the Vietnamese women, he described them as being very uncooperative. Ian's case was being handled by Detective Sanchez from New York City's 30th Precinct. On Wednesday, January 11th, one report reads investigators, quote, returned to the apartment where Ian had been staying to do a more thorough sweep of the building. I guess implying that they had been there at least once before and had done a less thorough sweep? Anyway, they checked the apartment, the roof, and the elevator shaft and found nothing. Beyond that, detectives told Ian's family that they ran his name through the homeless shelter database and that they, quote, passed a bunch of the missing persons flyers around to the midnight police, whatever the hell that is. As far as I can tell from his Reddit posts, Jamie was happy and grateful for the way the cops were handling Ian's case, which is strange because according to Jamie himself, the police told him that beyond running Ian's name and posting flyers, there wasn't much more they could do. I have notes. First and foremost, what about all those security cameras New York City is famous for? The reason we assume that Ian entered the train station at 145th Street is because the last digital transaction on his Metro card was at 145th Street and Broadway. So shouldn't the cops have been able to pull video? Wouldn't it have been sort of crucial to see if they could find him on surveillance? Was he alone? Was he being followed? Was there anything suspicious? Was it even Ian who used the Metro card? Well, here's a fun fact about the New York City subway system, one of the largest in the world. Literally zero subway cars have surveillance cameras. Less than half of the stations themselves have cameras. And the Transit Authority refuses to release to the public which stations do. And apparently it's a real headache to actually obtain footage if it's been recorded. In this case, it seems like no one even tried. Okay, but how about surveillance cameras in or around the apartment building where Ian was staying? Wouldn't it be worth checking to see if he did, in fact, leave alone or if he ever made it back after December 30th? Back on Jamie's original Reddit post about Ian's disappearance, a person familiar with the neighborhood where Ian was staying commented that a lot of buildings in the neighborhood have security cameras. This person even posted a picture of the building next door to where Ian had stayed to show that that building indeed had a security camera and even listed the security company who maintained it. I know it's a stab in the dark, they commented, but maybe contact them to see if they'll watch their footage to see if your brother is on any of it. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that anyone did. Okay, so the NYPD didn't check any security footage. What about the local hospitals? Unless Jamie just forgot to mention that they checked all the hospitals, which doesn't seem very likely considering his posts about his brother's disappearance tended to be pretty thorough. 
The official position of the NYPD is that they do not believe foul play is involved in Ian's disappearance. But if foul play wasn't involved, then what was it? If the police know nothing, then who does? What about the people Ian was staying with? What do they know? And what do we know about them? Here's what Jamie had to say about them on the Reddit thread. At least one of them goes to school with Ian at VCU. I've never met them. We've tried to contact those people he was with. They've already left NYC without him. But they had a thick accent we couldn't penetrate and were very uncooperative. If I have the rest of my life to think about this, then it's a sure bet that I'm going to track them down and get a detailed account of anything he might have said before he left. But right now, I don't think they'll help me, and I don't know how to make them help. Okay, so he says he tried to contact them, but it also sounds like he actually did contact them, what with their impenetrable accents and uncooperativeness. And I have a lot of questions about how this part went down. Isn't being very uncooperative sort of a red flag? Someone calls you, tells you that their little brother is missing, as in disappeared, desperately asks you, the last person to see their little brother alive, for help, for anything you might know, and you tell them nothing? Could they not find someone who spoke their language to maybe help with the language barrier? Also, there's no mention in any of the Reddit posts or news stories about this that the police even tried to follow up with these people. I don't know if they even found them. Also, just like packing up and leaving, that's not a good look. And listen, I know college students don't always have the best judgment. When I was in college in 1997, I hitchhiked from Great Barrington, Massachusetts to New York City. That, that was a poor choice. But like your friend or at least someone you're sharing an apartment with for a few days goes missing and you just leave? Who does that? We need more information on these people. It's possible the reason the police don't suspect foul play in Ian's case is that they believe Ian never wanted to be found. That Ian disappeared on purpose. After all, adults in this country are legally allowed to walk away from their lives without having to tell anybody where they went or why. It's a shitty thing to do, but it happens. On the other hand, one thing we do know about Ian, according to his brother, is that he had a history of depression. And again, like, same. But it's hard to know to what extent his depression showed up in his life or affected him. Regardless, it's possible that Ian's mental health played a role in his disappearance. One theory is that he had some sort of mental health episode, forgot who he was, and ended up homeless in New York. This theory comes from the now-defunct Facebook group Find Ian Burnett. A member of the Facebook group posted that she kept seeing the same homeless man over and over again and believed it was Ian. She eventually snapped a photo of this man and posted it to the group. I have searched and searched, and I cannot find this photo. But no one ever verified that the man in the photo was Ian. She said she talked to the man and that he got cagey when she asked him if he was Ian, but 
People who are living on the streets sometimes get cagey when strangers ask them who they are, just like people living in apartments or houses. Weird, right? And here's the thing. People don't go from engineering student to completely unrecognizable person living on the street overnight. Like, he's not suddenly going to be covered in dirt and rags pushing a shopping cart. If Ian had been wandering around having some kind of mental health episode, the chances of someone spotting him are good. Also, Ian had his ID with him. At least it wasn't in the apartment when his family came to look for him. So even if he had forgotten who he was, his handy-dandy ID would have provided some clue. Another possibility is that Ian took his own life and his body was somehow never found. There really is not too much to say about this theory other than that it would be a tragic outcome. But there's no evidence that Ian was that depressed, and it doesn't seem like he came from a family that would have let him travel to New York City with strangers in the middle of a major depressive episode. And maybe he did meet with foul play. Maybe he witnessed something he wasn't supposed to. Maybe he was murdered and his body was expertly disposed of. Weirder shit has happened. To this day, no one knows what happened to Ian, including his family. A year after his disappearance, his brother Jamie posted this final update about the case to Reddit. The answer is no. We still don't know anything. I don't hurt constantly because it doesn't feel possible. Still feels like he's a text message away. There was no body. There was no funeral. And while we had a little ceremony on his birthday, the truth is that there will never, ever be closure. I don't know where he is. And honestly, I'm not looking. I don't know where I'd even begin to look. At this point, if he comes back to us, it'll be under his own power. Maybe the only thing worse than losing a loved one is literally losing a loved one never having any answers as to where or why they went, what happened to them, if they're even still alive. And if they are, why won't they just come home? Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. On March 8, 2014, Malaysian Flight 370 vanished off radar about 40 minutes after taking off and was never seen again. It was a commercial flight carrying 227 passengers and 12 crew members. How is it possible for a 150-ton aircraft to disappear without a trace? Was it an accident or something much more terrifying? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode is Luther Creek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 
Also, if you're enjoying our show, check out all of the Obsessed Network shows, including Murder in Alliance, a real-time investigation podcast uncovering the truth behind the murder of 26-year-old Yvonne Lane in Alliance, Ohio. On this week's episode, host Maggie Freeling covers the trial of David Thorne, Yvonne's ex-boyfriend who was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life without parole. But he couldn't have killed her. More than 10 witnesses saw him two counties away at the exact same time the murder was being committed. Find Murder and Alliance wherever you get your podcasts. 